1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John. Hello? Uh, anyone? Okay, apparently this week it's just me. Anyway, the mayoral elections are all done, the general election is still a couple of weeks off, and best of all, there's no one here to stop me. So this week, I'm going to kick back, relax, and do something I've been wanting to do for ages. We're going to do an entire podcast about Rome. Uh, but, you know, not like modern Rome, like ancient Rome. What, it's a city? still counts? Stop looking at me like that.
0: Hi, um, I'm uh, Kevin Feeney. I'm uh, from Northern Ireland, but I'm a graduate student at Yale University uh, in the United States studying the later Roman Empire.
1: Okay, cool. And when you say later Roman Empire, like which which centuries are we talking about here?
0: So what I do is really between about the third and the fifth century.
1: That's the bit where they all get they they all get gods,
0: right? That's right. Yeah, They, they all turn Christian and then half the empire collapses
1: cool well we won't we won't yeah we won't draw too many conclusions from from that (laughs) conjunction of events but yeah so the reason i thought it'd be fun to to get you on the podcast is basically to talk about you know what what the urban world was like in those days you know obviously this is kind of an earlier draft of of western civilization as it were they had some pretty big cities with some pretty big architecture and monuments and stuff going on so you know what would
0: what would ancient Rome have been like, really? Well, I think the first thing to get in your head about ancient Rome as a city is that it was really, really big. And by that, I mean it was a population of about a million people at its peak, which doesn't sound so big maybe to us today with 21st century cities, but meant that it was actually the most heavily populated city in human history um, up until uh, London in about the 19th century. So it was really big.
1: So... This, this is the sort of standard city metric line of questioning, but how, how how would you get around the city of a million people in the days before you could, like, dig a train underground? Like, what, <laughs> was it just like horse and cart? What were people doing to get from one side of
0: town to the other? So it really was, uh, for most people, it wasn't even horse and cart. For most people, it was just, you know, walking, uh, old-fashioned walking. Um, and we have to um, imagine the streets of ancient Rome aren't these kind of big open, you know, boulevards or these big... Um, Uh, things like the forum that we sometimes think of they're pretty narrow crowded busy streets Um, i imagine it would take you a very very long time to cross it and things like a horse and cart or uh, riding a horse those are sort of for for better off people for merchants and things like that how densely populated are we talking here i mean presumably it
1: was what we'd now call like apartment blocks a lot of it was it
0: it really was yeah they actually had um, these apartment blocks that they called insulae which is the latin for islands and uh, they would rise to uh, six, seven stories high. Um, there was actually, um, like like Washington, D.C. today, Rome passed a law that limited the height of buildings. So they weren't meant to go above seven stories, but a few of them did. And the bottom floor would be shops um, and things like this. And then you would then get... Uh, apartments of declining quality as you went higher up so the very very top apartments were these tiny little rooms that only the poorest people would would ever want to live in
1: basically the the richer you are the fewer the steps you have to
0: climb exactly that's right
1: going back to this the 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 density question i mean do we have a sense of just how how big rome was physically i mean how how small a space can you get a million people into in the ancient (laughs) world
0: well, that was actually a question that really vexed the Romans themselves because, uh, they originally believed that the line around the city had been drawn by their founder, by Romulus. And so, uh, it was actually a sacred boundary. You weren't allowed soldiers inside it and you weren't really meant to build outside it. Uh, but over time they really started pushing this more and more. Um, and actually one of the ways that we can see the boundaries of ancient Rome is, uh, places where today we have Christian burial sites uh, so things like the catacombs uh, or the Vatican originally those were built um, on the outskirts of the city and then uh, the city grew and grew and sort of moved to encompass them inside it so that those are one of the ways that we can get a sense of, of how much smaller the ancient city was uh, in physical space.
1: So, so maybe the transport thing wasn't such a big issue if you could kind of walk across it in an hour anyway it's not like you're commuting 20 miles or something. Yeah. Like <laughs>
0: No, that's true. Though I think those those streets are going to be very, very busy when you're trying to make your way through them. So, so do we have a sense of you know
1: street life, like with were with were like traders hanging around? Like, what, give, give us a little bit of a tour.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you have a metropolis of this size, you know, firstly, it's extremely multicultural. You've got people coming in from across Italy certainly up to, you know, about the the turn of the first millennium and then after that from all over the the Roman world and beyond. So I think you would hear a a whole mix of of languages, uh, for one thing. Um, I mean, it's not just going to be everyone speaking Latin. Then when you walk around, you're going to see all sorts of different costumes, all sorts of colours. Yeah, one of these uh, problems, I think, with modern people's uh, image of ancient Rome is that they picture everything as being all, you know, white marble columns and everybody's walking around very dignified in these white togas and, you know, sort of you know, speaking about like high matters of state and things like that. Um, Actually, I think ancient Rome would have been one of the most colorful cities uh, that you could imagine in the history of the world. For one thing, all that white marble would have been painted in very, very bright flourishing colors. Most people aren't wearing togas. That That's really sort of for, you know, politicians and things like that. Um, and for, uh, higher rank people. Most people are wearing you know, tunics of all sorts of, of fabrics and of all sorts of colours, and I think that if you were to look out at the city of Rome, you'd see somewhere that's extremely vibrant and extremely lively. And, and maybe the th- media that's captured that best is actually the, the HBO series Rome, which, while I can't necessarily recommend for the accuracy of the history, I think as an image of, of Rome as a living, thriving city, you really can't beat it.
1: Sure, sure. So, I mean, this is this is a difficult question, but, you know, tough i'm gonna ask it anyway like how how recognizable would you think it would be to to um you know modern people in terms of like i mean to, to what extent would it look like you know a strange city from a part of the world they don't know as opposed to something completely alien
0: So, yeah, I actually do think it uh, would look quite a lot like a a city, a modern city without, you know, the cars are obviously one of the most obvious things. Um, But I think it really would look more like that sort of like lively, thriving modern city than maybe this much, much colder image that we have um, and the impression we maybe get if we visit the Forum in Rome or something today. I think that you really are talking about, you know, somewhere that was recognizably a metropolis. Um, And uh, things like the apartment blocks, Things like the fact that you have recognisable districts. You know, there's certain districts around the Palatine Hill where you have these huge mansions that are owned by the very richest people. Um, and then there's other districts that maybe wouldn't be totally unrecognisable from modern slums um, and from modern sort of uh, poorer areas. So
1: what are the kind of features of the city? Like, what, what would be the the sites?
0: Well, the interesting thing there is that uh, a lot of the sites sort of come around Uh, uh, In the time of the first emperor, Augustus, uh, who very famously is said, have found a city of brick and left Rome, a city of marble. Um, And he built some of these sort of large um, temples um, and uh, his mausoleum, which has actually just been renovated. So I think you either now can or you're about to be able to go uh, into it again for the first time in several decades. And it was a really huge, imposing site that at the time he built it was just outside the city. Obviously, you have the Colosseum, which really is the the Flavian amphitheater. The word Colosseum actually referred originally to a, a statue that was outside the building rather than the arena itself, which we all know. But the largest building in Rome would actually have been the Circus Maximus, the chariot racing circus, which you can now see the site of in Rome as essentially a park in that shape today. But it has preserved none of the original uh, building material or very little of it.
1: There is something pretty, pretty amazing about the fact that the kind of the biggest, what we'd now consider like monumental architecture was kind of, you know, sports grounds, basically.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I mean, the Romans really were they were sports crazy. And that's one of those things, I think, if you were to go back um, rome you would discover that the area around the circus maximus is one of the most thriving and busiest parts of the city at all times and they have a, an endless appetite for chariot racing above all
1: so so I, w- I want to move on to talk about the the rest of the empire But before we do that i mean what other leisure pursuits were there i mean would there have been like you know bars and restaurants would there have been like those sort of nice uh squares you get all over the mediterranean where people sit out there and drink wine in the sunshine
0: like not really, those so much. Uh, leisure was actually a real commodity in the Roman world. Um, in fact, uh, if you were a very, very rich aristocratic Roman, then you really defined your life as leisure and seeking of leisure was, was what you did. Um, and the, the Latin word for work literally means like lack of leisure. Um, that was what they defined. If you had to work, you didn't get leisure. Um, and so that was really something where they said, well, we set ourselves apart because we have the time to do this, and most people don't. Um, so I don't think you would see too many ordinary Romans sort of sitting out and uh, you know having a having a drink or something like that. There were uh, honestly, I think probably the main form of entertainment, other than the the sports grounds for the um, the uh, chariots and gladiators, was probably the brothels, of which there were a lot. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, we know that in ancient Pompeii, where we have a lot better evidence for this, we know that the number of, of brothels there is, is extremely, extremely large. I, I think it may be like one to every 20 men in the city or something like this. Uh, it's, uh, it's impressive. So, it's sort of like the, the equivalent of pubs or something, is it? Like... <laughs> it really is, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so, okay, I mean, Pompeii, as I understand, it was basically a resort town, right? It was somewhere people would go, to, like, go on the
0: holidays or something, wasn't it? Right. For a lot of people, yeah. I mean, it had, like any resort town, it had its own population as well, but it definitely served that function. So, so I mean, w-
1: what else is going on in the empire? What are the other kind of significant cities that, that we know a
0: lot about today? Well, the first thing to say is that to uh, an extent that I think we don't often realize today, the Roman Empire really defined itself by its cities um, and defined itself as, as being an urban civilization even though you know 90 percent of the population are are, uh, not living in cities Um, so where the romans came and there weren't cities they built them Um, and that's what we see certainly in all over britain as well as in france and spain and other parts of the western mediterranean having cities was just part of what the romans considered civilized life
1: give us give us some examples of of roman founded cities
0: well well, london is a pretty obvious example A pretty big one. Colchester was the Roman capital. What you find with a lot of these, especially in frontier territories like Britain, is that they start as military camps and then they sort of grow from there um, into becoming permanent cities. Paris is another one, which uh, I think that may have been on the site of originally a small Gallic camp, but it really was turned into a city by the Romans.
1: It's kind of crazy to think that like 1500 years after the empire
0: falls, these are still some of the most significant cities in Europe. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I think that's that's uh, really striking, though, is if you want to look at the biggest Roman cities and the most important Roman cities, most of them aren't cities that we would think of today as being especially important. There are no really, really important Roman cities in Spain or in Britain um, or in France, actually, with maybe the exception of uh, of Marseille, which was founded as Massilla. The Romans really saw themselves as being a Mediterranean people rather than a European people. And that was what they based their worldview on. So outside of Rome itself, the biggest Roman cities anywhere in the Mediterranean are at um, Carthage. They're old enemies in uh, modern Tunisia, uh, at Alexandria in Egypt, uh, Antioch in Syria. Um, and then maybe most importantly, um, but a very late Roman foundation was Constantinople, founded by Constantine in 330, which is, is modern Istanbul. And which
1: is, you know, again, that's still one of the largest cities in europe really isn't it
0: yeah absolutely and it's after the sort of fall of the roman empire in the west then then um, constantinople became the new sort of most populous city in the world um at that point um, and it had about a population of about half a million so still a long way down from rome but a lot more populated than most places
1: i mean i was going to say it's about the size of leicester today which does sort of make it sound rather less important but uh <laughs> I mean, I assume a lot of the research is kind of focused on on Rome itself. But what do we know about the kind of the sort of architecture or urban form or just kind of life in these provincial cities
0: and how it differed from, from the capital, really? Well, we actually know quite a lot because uh, primarily because of archaeology and excavations um, and also because in the late empire, Rome itself stops mattering very much. So we have a lot of writers who are, come from all different parts of the empire and tell us about life there. Not not so much Britain. We have very, really no British writers, but uh, from lots of other places. So we know that Antioch in Syria, for instance, becomes sort of known as a a city of lights, uh, a sort of proto city that never sleeps because uh, they keep the streets very, very well lit there. um, even at nighttime. And this is something that's commented on by a few different writers. How do they do that? Oil lamps or oil lamps? yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's commented on as a distinctive uh, feature of life there.
1: Just as a, as a sidebar, I find the fact there are no British writers, because there were no British senators ever, either, were there? like, were, were, are we sure
0: that Britain was actually in the empire? <laughs> you know, I, I hate to tell you, but Britain really was considered a complete backwater uh, of empire, to the extent that we're not even really sure when it fell out of the empire, because no one thought it was important enough to mention at the time. Um, in fact, the most important British writer I can think of off the top of my head is is actually St. Patrick, uh, who, of course, wrote some Latin text and, and was from from modern Wales. But uh, other than that, we, we just don't have very many writers. Um, we actually have an amazing uh, bunch of uh, sort of everyday documents from, from Roman Britain, um, from Vindolanda on the... Um, on the, uh, on Hadrian's Wall, um, which include the first ever example in the world of a, a woman writing Latin. And it's sort of uh, like an a invitation to a birthday party or something that she's written.
1: <laughs> and that's, that's the earliest one?
0: That, that, that is the earliest form of a woman writing Latin, yes, that has survived. It just happened to be preserved in this one site. The,
1: the, the thing I love about Hadrian's Wall is kind of not really about Hadrian's Wall itself. It's about the fact that they then try building another wall further north, the Antonine Wall, <laughs> and then abandoned it after 15 years and kind of sort of pretended they'd never really wanted lowland Scotland in the
0: first place. (laughs) It's true. They really uh, it's actually uh, sort of funny because there's what happens in a lot of these places, the Romans stop conquering. So in Germany and then in Scotland uh, is you get this kind of legend that builds up of, you know, we fought off the Romans. Unfortunately, it's really a lot more likely that the Romans kind of calculated the effort of going there, looked at the actual natural resources that were there and thought, you know what, it's not really worth it.
1: I mean, OK, I take your point in, in Scotland and, and, you know, we, we're clearly going to get letters about that. But like, <laughs> but surely sorry. Western Germany, Western Germany was kind of in the empire in the first century, wasn't it? And then there genuinely was the rebellion. The, Herman, wasn't it? Arminius. Yeah,
0: that's right. There's the Battle of the Chudoburg Forest. Um, but at that point, it's unlikely that they were planning on going much further anyway so that kind of has become the sort of convenient stopping point but actually a lot of historians think even if it wasn't for that would they have pushed on that much further it's not likely because they don't really that's about the time they stop conquering everywhere and in fact uh, britain is a major exception to that and that seems to largely be a vanity project by the emperor claudius who looks around and thinks well i really want to conquer somewhere to be a good emperor hang on there's britain Caesar went over there. It seems to be pretty quiet, so I'll just go for it. We're getting further
1: and further from the city metric <laughs> topics, but I don't I don't really care. This whole thing is just an excuse to talk about history anyway. So like, I'm curious, like, where, where is the sort of balance of evidence on, on Claudius? Like, Was Robert Graves right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this is all going a lot earlier than the emperor's who I'm most used to talking about. It. But uh, as I understand it, I think the uh, people are... Guardedly positive on Claudius, they think he was he was he was pretty okay. Um, he probably wasn't sort of um, an incompetent fool the way some people tried to make him out to be. He wasn't one of the all-time great emperors either. He was he was fine, which isn't bad really, considering how many terrible Roman emperors there are out there.
1: Yeah, I mean even in that dynasty, like it really isn't great, <laughs> is it? I mean he's kind of he's sort of one of the better ones by default because he's got Caligula and Nero on either side.
0: Yeah, exactly. The sort of the, the lack of the lack of too much incest and family murder really puts you in the upper tier of Julio Claudians. It's true. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: actually, that's that's something we can talk about sort of vaguely about emergency services. So the great fire of Rome under Nero. Firstly, like, do we know how much of a city, a disaster like that would have wiped out? And, and like, secondly, like what what emergency services were there in the event of something like that? What would have actually happened
0: so the first thing to say is there were no state emergency services at an early point at all. Um, and we actually know that fires were a real constant problem, as you'd imagine, right? And especially with these in July, these apartment blocks of like six or seven stories, um, there's all sorts of reports that they were getting burned down pretty regularly. And the uh, main thing that I can uh, uh, think of related to this is that... Um, We have this Roman called Crassus, you know, this extremely wealthy Roman um, from the late first century, from about the time of Julius Caesar. And uh, we're told that uh, one of his many scams that he did with his money was that uh, he would essentially uh, go to someone when their house was burning down and then buy it off them for a a cheap price and then have his own personal sort of slaves and his own people um, put out the fire very quickly. That was one of his get rich quick schemes.
1: I mean, do do you think we should be looking to, I mean... (sighs) There's a lot of people who very much like to privatise all emergency services, I suspect. Do you think think like the Institute of Economic Affairs or or whatever might be suggesting this one? No, never mind. Okay, we've banged on about sort of reasonably spurious topics for quite long enough. So I'm going to end on on an easy question, which is you're a historian of the later empire. You know, in, in, you know, two sentences or less, why did Rome fall? in two sentences or less okay, I, 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 won't, I, first I won't hold you to that that's fine <laughs> yeah. Just, just why, so why do you think
0: Rome fell? it's the most heavily disputed topic in the entire late empire I would go with the traditional explanation which is I think that the best explanation for Rome falling is that it gets overwhelmed by barbarian if you want to call them that um, invaders largely militarized, <laughs> largely germanic speaking peoples there were a lot of people who would very very strongly disagree with me um and say that it was you know uh, anything from from civil wars to um economic problems to uh you know disease or all sorts of things
1: i mean this is something i find fascinating actually there does seem to be in about the third or fourth century, there seems to be some kind of national natural disaster somewhere in Central Asia that forces these great movements of people that has a knock-on effect, not only on the Roman Empire, but you can see it in Chinese history as well, where there's suddenly people invading border territories. And I just kind of find it slightly mind-blowing that something that literally changes the path of world history is something we know so little about, just because it happens in a part of the world where we don't really have written records.
0: That's right, and there's there have been historians who have spent a very, very long amount of time attempting to connect these events um, in China, particularly with this people called the Xiongnu I'm um, trying to connect them to the Huns in some capacity because the Xiongnu, I think, are last seen sort of running west into the great Russian steppes, from which the Huns then burst out of a century later. But I think the jury is still very much out on whether we can actually make any sort of connection there at all. What about the? Sorry, we've gone
1: way over the two sentences now, but I I don't care. D- does Rome just get overextended? Is it just that they can't control a state that size from 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 like one city? I
0: mean, how? So I don't think that's a very um, plausible explanation. And I think that that, uh, for two reasons, first of which is because it really reaches its height in 117 AD. And then it survives for, you know, bare minimum three centuries after that. So that's a really, really, really long time um, to be saying, oh, well, you know, it had reached its height and that was just too much for it. The second thing is that actually, by the end, Rome isn't controlled from uh, one city anymore. And the city of Rome itself becomes... As like I say, mostly irrelevant. It really becomes a sideshow. Um, and there's one writer in the fourth century who calls it a, a sacred precinct far from the highway. And at this point, um, the Roman Empire is really split into two um, and is governed from in the east from Constantinople and in the west from Milan or Ravenna. Um, and they have a very large bureaucracy. Um, By the late Roman, Roman bureaucratic system, the late Roman government is the largest and the most complicated in certainly uh, Western history to date, by a very long way. Um, I think they're actually doing a pretty good job of managing it, um, and we can see that in the fact that the Eastern Empire survives a really long time, a millennium essentially, after the Western Empire falls. So why, why does power move out of Rome? I think a big part of that is the fact that um, in about 212 um, AD, Rome makes all of its all the people who live in its empire essentially citizens, and then uh, uh, shortly after that, a few decades after that, um, you start getting emperors, who are um, almost none of them are from Rome anymore. You've already had a few emperors who weren't from Rome, but then they came to Rome. But by the mid third century, the emperor has to do a lot of fighting on the frontiers. And then, you know, over time in the fourth century, um, we have, I think, four times in the entire century when an emperor visits Rome at all. And those are sort of, you know, very brief. Okay, I'm going to come and, you know, do like a tourist thing around the Colosseum, make a speech in the Senate and then say bye, guys.
1: I, yeah i find that slightly mind-blowing as well that the the, the i know i keep saying that but I, do, I really like roman history you can probably tell that by now yeah, but just this but but just this idea that like rome builds an empire and then like suddenly the empire is run by the people who got conquered like, there's kind of no parallel for that in in like european imperialism is there
0: right. i mean i can't speak for that <laughs> i don't know enough um what other periods i i can say that i think that you know uh by certainly by the third or fourth century, you know, um, people are, are considering themselves Roman if they're born in northern Iraq and they're considering themselves Roman if they're born in southern Britain. And they don't think they're any less Roman than people in Italy. Um, they really just don't see that distinction. Um, and there's a, a, a kind of great quote from uh, Cicero, actually. So before they have sort of really um, started expanding um, citizenship across the empire, who says, you know, well, I, I have two fatherlands and it, it's the city of Rome and it's my home city which is Arpinum in Italy. And, you know, they're both my fatherlands. I think that's the way that a lot of people feel by the late empire. And they have very, very strong regional identities, but they also have a very strong identity of themselves as Romans as well. Uh, And also by the, you know, the the best Roman historian that we have from the entire late empire is born in Syria um, and then travels up to um, the Balkans. He fights in Hungary for a while. He goes into Iraq. He maybe visits Egypt, um, he goes to France, and then he sits down to write his history in the city of Rome. So there's a huge amount of geographic mobility and ident- identity mobility, I think, that's going on by the end of the empire. It's not about the city of Rome anymore.
1: To what extent are people identifying with, I, I realise these, these terms are trans-historical, really, but to what extent are they identifying with like cities as opposed to you know, territories or countries or provinces or whatever it may be?
0: Massively so. People have huge civic pride. Um, They really, you know, see themselves as part of their city. And often those cities are bound up in, in, you know, little regions and things like that. And just as often their city has a rivalry with the city next door. Um, And cities have their own gods. They have their own currency um, for most of the empire. A lot of them have their own calendars with their own months and things. Um, And then, you know, if an emperor passes through, they maybe rename one of the months after him. Uh, (laughs) And they ha- they have their own religious festivals uh, as well, often with their own you know specific uh, gods who only that city worships. People feel a really fierce sense of of um, civic identity, uh, which I think is is a part of why one of the great honors in the early Roman world is actually sitting on your city council. That that's considered to be sort of an extremely honorable position and something that uh, you do if you're very wealthy and you build these big buildings in your city and put your name on them.
1: So, the real lesson here is that Andy Burnham is the heir to Caesar Augustus.
0: Yes, I think that's it, exactly.
1: So, you know, even though it's just me this week, I thought we still need to do something to end the podcast. And, you know, I thought. I quite like the audience participation thing, it seems to work quite nicely, so I thought I'd, I'd give it a whirl. And I asked Twitter, What cities or places from history do you wish you could visit? Anyway, it's fair to say the answers were um, variable. A couple of people said Atlantis, which was obviously very helpful. Um, several people suggested Samarkand, which, I mean, that surprised me. There's clearly a lot of Silk Road fans out there. A surprisingly high number said things like, This is going to be hard. Tenochtitlan or Katahuik which I think is in Turkey. But that was clearly, they don't want to go to these places. They just wanted to make me say them out loud. And, you know, they think I can't see through that. Anyway, let's, let's read out some actual tweets. James O'Malley suggested Victorian London, revolutionary Paris, Renaissance Italy. Basically places in Assassin's Creed. So I can see how accurate the games are. Thanks for that. Uh, Dougie Boots said Rome under Trajan, Byzantium under Constantine, New York under Ed Koch. There's a man who likes a Golden Age. Alex Ingram suggested uh, London in the 80s just so I could settle some debates with cabbies. Bob Melling says he'd go back to 10th century York and get Eric Bloodaxe to carve a message for 21st century Yorkshire devolutionists reading, You aren't Vikings, stop showing off. Eventually I specified that I wanted funny answers, which in retrospect might have been a mistake. BuzzFeed's Marie LeConte says, I'd like to go to Romford in the 18th century to watch John grow up, ha ha ha, etc. Anyway, I think the single best response was the one from George Burris, who said, Bethnal Green in the 1980s, so I could buy my fucking flat. I'll see you next week.